Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Greetings and salutations to podcast land once again. I'm excited to be back with you looking at another issue in Old Testament studies today. I know some of you were hoping I would have another interview like Jason Lyle last episode, uh, but unfortunately, it's just me. So some of you will no doubt turn off and delete this episode immediately, having found out that it's just me. But alas, it's just me. But uh, hopefully it's a good issue and some of you will find this very interesting. Today we're going to talk a little bit about wisdom from the perspective of the ancient Near East and specifically Proverbs. I think that this is a healthy subject to work through and it's something that I just was working through with our Old Testament studies class at Shepherd's Theological Seminary. So I wanted to throw it out there for you all in podcast land. I don't want to hoard the wealth, as it were, There's, which is interesting since wisdom is often referred to as being more valuable than wealth. So perhaps the analogy is valid. In any case, I wanted to talk about uh, wisdom. And uh, I think specifically re- referring to how Proverbs talks about wisdom, it can be really helpful for us to glean something from from the biblical perspective of wisdom. And to start off, I want to give just some generic thoughts on the source of wisdom. And I would argue, and I, I don't think anyone would be, would be surprised by this, that God is ultimately the source of all wisdom. Now, that's a very biblical foundational principle, and it's it's showed uh, especially in places like Proverbs 8. And if God is the source of all wisdom, which he claims to be, and we understand the relationship of wisdom and creation, so for example, in Proverbs 8, specifically 12 through 31, we, we read wisdom's own autobiography, as it were. In verse 12, wisdom says, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. And evil, uh, as, as wisdom talks about the, the negative aspects of evil, uh, wisdom also talks about the positive aspects of applying and, and uh, being utilized. So, for example, in 15, it says, buy me kings reign and rulers decree what is just by me princes rule and nobles all who govern justly so in other words wisdom is what kings and rulers use when they are doing well and as wisdom continues to describe its role in life it moves on to describe its role in creation so in verse 22 uh, 22 through 31, wisdom says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth, and when there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, etc. Uh, in verse 27 it says, When he established the heavens, I was there. And when he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made the firm, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned the sea its limits, etc., then I was beside him, in verse thirty, like a master workman, and I was daily his delight. 
So what is being stated there but in the autobiography of wisdom is that wisdom was there when God created the world. Wisdom was, if we want to say it this way, uh, interwoven into the very fabric of creation. And that's an important element to understand because uh, as we begin to talk about the ways that we glean wisdom, uh, then we will understand why people who aren't Christians or why people who don't believe the Bible can actually live wise lives. It's because wisdom is actually inherently a part of God's created framework as well. For example, in Proverbs 3, 19 and 20, we also see the same theme brought out that we just read about in Proverbs 8. Uh, it says, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth and by understanding he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. So in other words, wisdom was integral to the creation process. So the key takeaway is that God ordered creation in accordance with his wisdom and in so doing, in accordance with his desires and in accordance with the wisdom, the world functions in an orderly way uh, in, a, in accordance with that wisdom and with that design. So if we think about this from a, this is just one application before we jump into some of these other discussions of sources, but this is, this is so important, is that from an uh, epistemological viewpoint, epistemology is the study of how we know things. So, so epistemology is the study of, of knowing something. How do you know what you know, basically? Well, in, in many worldviews, there's actually a problem with explaining how do we know something. So, for example, uh, a lot of atheistic uh, proponents would argue that you can rely on reason or empiricism and the way that you know, uh, for example, the way that you know gravity exists is because you drop something and it continues to fall and... Each time you do that, it falls. And actually, uh, Dr. Lyle on the previous episode talked uh, about this in, in brief with regard to the difference between uh, the ultimate proof of creation and how you can't make sense of the universe apart from a biblical worldview. And yet, uh, people will often try to do that in a circular way. But Proverbs 8 is and Proverbs 3, this, this principle of God imbibing creation into uh, or imbibing creation with wisdom, I should say, uh, is important because that's why we understand that things are orderly, that there is a uniformity uh, involved in creation. And so with regard to this then, wisdom is going to be observable uh, by the secular world even. Those who reject God can still observe that if they are nice to people, people are most often nice in return to them. Or if they save their money rather than spend it frivolously, they are usually better off. So those principles are observable because God has built uh, the world, designed the world in an orderly way with wisdom sewn into the very fabric of creation. So Ultimately, all wisdom, whether it's observed on a practicality standpoint or whether it's special revelation, ultimately comes from God. And we understand that just because of how Scripture talks about creation and wisdom being linked with creation. So that's the foundational thinking. And that's why if we, if we start uh, going down, down, the, down the road here, that's why those who are involved in Hinduism or Buddhism or those who are, who are just viewed as wise individuals can have access to wisdom 
because wisdom is is put into creation and that you you have access to that through a variety of means in creation. So let's talk about the varieties of access to wisdom because I think that this is this is a helpful discussion to have. And in reality, a lot of the framework for this discussion comes from uh, from a book that Tremper Longman wrote. I, I don't always uh, recommend everything that Tremper Longman does uh, because he has a few things, a few major issues that I disagree with him on. Yet his work on wisdom literature is, is really well done for the most part. And uh, one of the things that he points out in his book, The Fear of the Lord is the Beginning of Wisdom, uh, he has like a discussion of wisdom literature, uh, is, is that in sources for wisdom, one of the main sources that you have is what's what he identifies as tradition. So tradition can include things like other ancient Near Eastern wisdom collections uh, and teaching of your parents. Uh, in some degree, it can be teaching of of teachers, but but usually it's it's the teaching that's been passed down through your your fathers, through your parents, and then also it can it can even be found uh, in the law itself. The laws can teach you wisdom. Uh, that that's actually a, a integral function of the law in the Old Testament paradigm. So the teaching of the fathers, the law, and other ancient Near Eastern wisdom collections. So, for example, the way Proverbs even starts, uh, Proverbs one eight says, "Listen, my son, to the teaching of your father." Or Proverbs four, uh, starting in verse one all the way even through verse four, says, "Hear, sons, the fatherly discipline." Uh, so, so often there's there's this understanding that the parental instruction in, in Proverbs, it often will say, uh, bind the teachings of your mother around your neck, phrases like that. So parental instruction is a way that wisdom can be passed down. And really, that is that is a gift of God to his creation to allow the family unit to exist. And so wise parents are going to beget wise children because they're going to pass down the things that they've learned already. Can you imagine if just the insanity of if every child had to rediscover the principles of life and how life functioned? That would just be insane. And so obviously God's designed the world so that that kind of thing can be avoided. And so you have the ability to pass on certain knowledge and wisdom uh, to progeny, and that's really helpful. Now, I want to make another comment about the ancient Near Eastern wisdom collections because this is this is helpful in thinking about a couple issues. And one of those issues is with regard to Solomon's comparative wisdom. So in 1 Kings 4, for example, we're, we're told that God gives Solomon a certain amount of wisdom. And what it is described as in verse 29 of 1 Kings 4, it says, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. So he just had an incredible capacity to understand things. And in verse 30, it says, so that, in other words, this wisdom was so great and his understanding so extensive, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. That's verse 30. And then it goes on to list people that he was actually wiser than. And then in verse 32, it says he spoke 3,000 Proverbs and his songs were 1,005. So, uh, and it goes on for a couple more verses to talk about his exploits of being able to talk about 
agriculture, to be able to talk about animals. His wisdom extended to all areas. Now, what I want to draw observation from here in this text is that his his wisdom was compared to that of Egypt. Now, that would that would be no compliment at all if it said that his wisdom surpassed all the wisdom of Egypt. It would be no compliment if the wisdom of Egypt was terrible or if it wasn't viewed as being uh, helpful, for example. And so it's what what the author of First Kings is doing is he's giving us insight into the value that Solomon had for his wisdom. But what this does also indicate is that Egypt, along with other ancient Near Eastern peoples, did have access to wisdom, true wisdom, observation and analysis. Now, I want to give a couple of the Egyptian proverbs just to show that there's this comparison with uh, ancient Near Eastern literature and the Bible. And I think that that can be helpful to, to think through. So, uh, for example, in the Egyptian wisdom literature, you have statements like the following. Better is poverty in the hand of the God than wealth in the storehouse. Better is bread with a happy heart than wealth with vexation. Well, if you, if you read Proverbs 16, for example, you get a similar statement there. In Proverbs 16, it says, how much better to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding than silver. So in other words, uh, it's talking about how wisdom is better than wealth. And that's a very similar aspect to what, uh, to what the Egyptian Proverbs are talking about. And, uh, Proverbs 28, 6 says something similar. Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. So throughout, you have this indication in both Proverbs as well as the Egyptian wisdom literature that poverty with wisdom is actually better than wealth uh, if you are corrupt in essence. And so that's, that's a very, that's a very observable phenomenon. Uh, we, we definitely understand that. Um, we've seen plenty of people who have lots of wealth and yet are incredibly, uh, dissatisfied. Uh, in fact, it's, it's a pretty well known statistic that the suicide rate, uh, among, uh, wealthy or middle class, uh, individuals is higher than that of poor people which is kind of interesting if you think about uh, how we often think that being poor ought to be synonymous with being sad or being depressed, but that's not the case at all. Uh, similarly, later on in Egyptian uh, wisdom literature, you have this admonition, do not remove the scales nor alter the weights nor diminish the fractions of the measure. Do not desire a measure of the fields nor neglect those of the treasury. So in other words, don't uh, don't adjust the scales. Don't alter them. Uh, you need to have a, a fair measure. And so Proverbs 11.1 is very similar where Proverbs 11.1 says fraudulent scales are an abomination to the Lord, but an accurate weight brings his favor. So in other words, there is an element both in Egyptian wisdom literature as well as the Bible that when you are looking for fairness, that is to be something that is desired, that you shouldn't, you shouldn't seek to cheat somebody uh, because that would uh, be wrong. And that's, that's how we as a society need to live life. There are tremendous consequences if the society breaks down with regard to that. Now, there are other examples that we could go through 
with this, and uh, it is helpful. Uh, there's there's lots of I think I I think I wrote a blog post on this a while back as well, and so you could uh, do a search on my blog if you're interested in seeing some of the comparison of ancient Near Eastern wisdom literature. But the point is that there is a lot of comparison there. Now, this has caused some people to to question, well, maybe Israel is just borrowing all of the wisdom literature from other ancient Near Eastern cultures. And one of the things to recognize is that for the sake of the argument, it's actually not incorrect for, for Solomon or others to actually utilize uh, other wisdom literature. That That's actually not wrong. Um, there can be helpful principles that are derived from that in just a memorable way. So an illustration of that could be uh, quoting Ben Franklin, for example. I don't know if you knew this, but there is no book in the Bible called the book of Ben Franklin. However, Ben Franklin is a rather interesting, well-known individual, and he has written some things that are very uh, provocative and true and help us remember good godly biblical principles. For example, one that my parents have tried to instill in me is a penny saved is a penny earned, right? Now, I'm, I realize that as I'm saying that, if I remember correctly, to all of the Canadian listeners out there, I believe the Canadians have outlawed pennies, if I remember correctly, right? So this is no longer true for the, uh, for the country of Canada. I'm sorry. But for the Americans, we still have the ability to save pennies. A uh, penny saved is a penny earned. Now, uh, is Ben Franklin inspired? Obviously not. That would be ridiculous. But what we are saying is true. And the principle behind that is true. It's a biblical principle that when we save money, we are actually building it up for future investment. We are, we are saving it instead of expending it or just even throwing it away or whatever. We're saving it and now we are, we are earning that to our, uh, to our account for future expenditure. And so it is, it is good to save up wealth for future expenses. Those are, those are biblical principles. Now I can take that and even use that as an illustration of biblical principles. So Solomon, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, can even take Egyptian wisdom literature and he can take some of those proverbs and incorporate them into the biblical uh, compilation of wisdom literature because the principles are, are true and they are, they are accurate. Now, so I'm saying he could do that, but then I would also go ahead and take a step back and say there, it's also just as likely that he's also coming up with those, I mean, if he is the wisest individual of this time period, uh, really of of the world. I mean, if we think about, um, really, Christ is the only one who can um, surpass Solomon in his wisdom. And so, when we think about uh, the perspective of Solomon, uh, he he would likely be able to come up with very similar uh, or even more exceptional proverbs that that could be utilized. So just because somebody comes up with something that sounds similar or is similar in a variety of ways doesn't mean that it was borrowed. So that's that's a part of the thing to keep in mind is, you know, just as a stupid illustration, there have been plenty of times where I thought I came up with original idea and then I found out 73 people also came up with that idea. So that kind of thing happens from time to time. And if you're the wisest person in the world, you probably would come up with ideas that by yourself that other people also had taken hundreds of years to come up with. And so that, that typical idea is, is known. 
So no need to assume that there's borrowing between the Israelite ancient Near Eastern literature as well as uh, borrowing either way. There's no need to assume that. But even if there is, it's not necessarily wrong or it's not necessarily problematic. The point being that through tradition, through, through wisdom compilations, as well as through the teaching of fathers and even through the way that law is used uh, with a variety of, of applications, those things are avenues through which an individual can learn to live a wise life. Whether you are a believer or not, those are avenues that, that can be used. Now, there are other ways that you can glean wisdom as well. So not just through tradition, you can also glean wisdom through experience and observation. Experience and observation. So there, there is a, a experimental kind of idea. You try something out, it works or it doesn't. So you have a pragmatic, uh, aspect to, to learning. And so personal experience is, is a great avenue for learning. And it's, it's one of those, one of those things that as you, as you pursue things, you, you learn what works and what doesn't work. For example, if you eat something, and you have a, an allergic reaction, all of a sudden you understand that I better not eat that again. And so experience, observation teaches you. Well, even obser- observation with regard to animals. Proverbs 6 uh, has the famous observation of the ant where the author says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. So Solomon is looking at the ant saying we can learn principles of life even from the ant. And so we can do those things. We can observe how how birds migrate. We can observe all sorts of things and take a variety of life lessons, you know, like go south for the winter. That seems to be a appropriate biblical application. No, but the point is that we do experience and observe things, and that's a valid means for gleaning uh, wisdom, and and we understand that. And a third way that we we could glean wisdom would be correction. Now, this is this is something that Proverbs actually speaks a lot about, and uh, Proverbs twelve one says, for example, those who love discipline love knowledge, and those who hate correction are dullards. So those who love knowledge, those who love discipline are those who end up receiving correction appropriately and those who are uh, hating correction, refuse to accept correction, end up being the fool. And this is why if, you, if you're doing a study on Proverbs, uh, it, it becomes obvious very, very quickly that wisdom and humility are linked hand in hand. So you're not going to find a wise individual who is not simultaneously humble. Or to put it another way, uh, nobody can be wise without also being humble. It's just not, uh, they're incompatible, or I should say uh, their opposites are incompatible. You can't be proud and also be wise. It just doesn't work. And this is why Proverbs speaks significantly and repeatedly about the necessity of humility. Humility is essential for living the godly life. Uh, pride and wisdom are incompatible. Uh, so for example, in Proverbs 8.13, it says, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. 
Uh, so it's essential to follow uh, the pathway of humility. Uh, Proverbs 16, 18, very similar. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So those are those are very prominent themes in Proverbs. One more that I'll just throw out there, Proverbs 3, 34. Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. So when we think about how Proverbs talks about humility, and it talks about humility a lot. Part of the reason why humility is so important, so essential, is because you have to humble yourself in order to in order to learn. For example, uh, you may be a CEO of the company, and you may be in charge of you know hundreds, thousands of employees, and you know some low level level one you know hourly employee might try to get a hold of you as a CEO and say, hey, I know this new product design is gonna supposed to be launching, but I just want you to know that as part of my design I uh, or a part of my job, I, I found a design flaw in it. And I just really think it would be terrible for us if we went forward with it. It would be a disaster. Well, who knows more, the CEO or this low-level employee that is saying he has a design flaw. Well, obviously, the illustration points out that you can you can be corrected by those who are who are less powerful than you or who make make less money from you. Uh, same thing in the Christian in the Christian realm. Uh, the the pastors, the elders, those who have been faithful for 20, 20 years, thirty years, they can learn from Christians who have been a Christian one year or half a year, and and they can be confronted and corrected and say, "Hey, what about this?" or "I see this in your life. Is this is this correct?" And so they can grow and learn. And so correction is an amazing avenue that God has given to believers, uh, to everybody really, but believers in particular. I'm thinking about right now. Uh, to to glean wisdom, and so that's why one of the most important things I always try to tell people that I, when when talking about humility, is that humility really is so important, and it's it's one of those areas where endeavor above all things to to make yourself approachable and correctable. Like you really want people to be able to come to you and say, I think you could improve this way, or I, I've noticed this and maybe you can, you can do a better job of this. You want people to do that because you want to get better. And, and the only way you can get better is by not trying to seem like you have it all, uh, down. You know, we've all, we all know people who, who pretend that they know something. And I think it's, uh, I don't know if it's a well-known phrase, but I, I, I picked it up reading a, uh, a book somewhere along the lines where uh, the, the phrase goes, those who pretend to know never will. Uh, you don't want to be one of those people who, who pretends that they, they have it all down or who pretends that they know something. And so they avoid uh, the helpful correction or the helpful learning. So obviously this is a, the, a key avenue to wisdom being corrected and allow, allowing there to be an implementation of, of that. And then th- there may be other avenues as well, but I'll just give one more with regard to this, and that would be the wisdom of, of the elders or the teachers. And what I mean by that is that those who have lived a life, those who have the authority to teach, and this is uh, what we would call a self-evident category of wisdom because similar to the parents, although parents have a, have a right and authority that is not granted to teachers inherently, but teachers themselves also uh, have a similar avenue in that because if we, we think of experience being a teacher, uh, you can learn 
if someone else has has experienced something, you can experience that vicariously through them. Okay, so what I mean by that is you don't have to experience a thing to know about it. That's actually kind of something our culture struggles with is, is a lot of times people say, oh, you can't speak about that. You haven't gone through that. Or, you know, you can't, you can't talk about racism because you're whatever skin color, or you can't talk about feminism because you're a man or something like that. You don't have to experience something in order to uh, have knowledge or wisdom concerning it. Uh, and by the way, this is also in line with what Paul tells Timothy, because Paul tells Timothy, do not let anyone despise your youth, preach the word. Like this is the word of God actually is the avenue of teaching. And part of that understanding is knowing that the wisdom of the teachers, the elders, they experience something and then they teach you about it. So this could take place through the classroom. It could take place through a mentor relationship. It could take place through a book. Uh, there are lots of different ways to glean from the authority or wisdom of a teacher or an elder. And so you save yourself time and trouble by learning from somebody else uh, their, their lessons on life and what that might look like. So you can, you can glean wisdom from individuals. They don't even have to be Christians, uh, but you can glean wisdom from others, those who have lived life and learned life lessons. And this is just a, a normal axiomatic way of, of learning. And we, we all acknowledge that. That's why we, we talk about school being important. We, we, would not, we would not think school is important unless we acknowledge this principle of being able to learn wisdom through the impartation of material uh, of others who have, who have knowledge or experience with regard to that. Now, all that to say, this is, this is where the, the hang-up or the, uh, the, the complication is, the caveat, if you will. We have these four categories of experience. You have tradition, you have experience and observation, you have correction, and you have the wisdom of teachers and elders, the vicarious aspect of wisdom. But what about, uh, or I should say it this way, what is the major problem with these categories of wisdom? And, and you know, in class, whenever we talk about this, I, I take a break at this point and I say, you know, what is the potential problem uh, of what's going on here? Uh, what when we look at these issues, what what are some of the complications? And you know, the students usually think about it for a little while, and then they they come and say, well. You know, I think I think somebody could be wrong, like in their experience. Maybe they could they could think that they are correct when when they're not. And th this is something that that we need to understand. Uh, very, this needs to be internalized uh, because we we understand that experience is a valid means of of knowledge, but at the same time, it's very clear that personal experience can be and often is flawed. In fact. Uh, a while back, I was researching this a little bit just because it's so interesting because in our culture, uh, a lot of people are all about experience and they say, well, you know, you can't speak on such and such an issue unless you have experienced it. And, uh, you know, even I was I was reminded of the Me Too movement. Maybe you remember that uh, the, the hashtag Me Too movement about, you know, everyone telling their story about how they were sexually assaulted and things like that. And I'm not denying that there were real valid occurrences of sexual assault and those ought to be punished to the fullest extent of the law. And maybe even laws need to be changed because some of the laws are quite worthless on the books. But all those things are acknowledged as true. But the thing to walk back is that experience actually 
is a bit of a cloudy category in and of itself. It can be, it can be twisted intentionally or unintentionally because we are, we are flawed individuals and our experience and observations are often, uh, often flawed, uh, both from a physical level as well as a spiritual level because we're sinners. Now, there's lots of statistics that back this up. And as I was researching this, uh, I came across a data from, uh, from, social scientists that talk about the the eyewitness testimonies that are used in court cases. And one of the interesting stats that that is utilized is that often, and we're talking about very often here, uh, the eyewitness testimony um, is is viewed as as being authoritative, but it's often later shown to be inaccurate or incorrect. And so this is a quote from the NCSC, which I can't remember what that stands for off the top of my head. Uh, something about the uh, uh, criminal science um, and uh, studies some, somewhere along the, the legal uh, aspect of things. And the quote says this, social scientists have demonstrated through studies since the 1960s that there was significant reason to be concerned about the accuracy of the eyewitness identification testimony used in criminal trials. Although witnesses can often be very confident that their memory is accurate when identifying a suspect, the malleable nature of human memory and visual perception makes eyewitness testimony one of the most unreliable forms of evidence. Now, that's interesting. Uh, and that's why, by the way, the biblical testimony is that you need to establish every fact on the basis of two or three witnesses because it's so important to have that multiple veracity going on, that, that verification from multiple sources of, okay, you're not just misremembering something. You're not seeing something that wasn't there. That's, that's an important element of the biblical view of justice as it's going on. Now, with regard to uh, experience and the lessons learned, that's also something that that could also be a physical or a, or a spiritual problem. The example I often give of people is the, uh, the person who's arrested for bank robbery. And so, you know, he, he may have been arrested for bank robbery. What is he going to glean from that experience? Is he going to say, yes, crime never pays and I should live a moral, uh, law abiding life from now on? Or is he going to say, well, that was stupid. I shouldn't have gotten caught. I needed a better getaway driver. And next time I rob a bank, I need a, you know, uh, Ferrari with, you know, top speeds of 200 and we're going to be able to, you know, fly out of there like nobody's business. So the lesson somebody learns from an experience could differ. Uh, whereas somebody with, with a, a, a conscience that's been, that's been sensitive to the things of God might learn the right lesson. Somebody who's desensitized in their conscience may say, may learn the exact opposite lesson and just say, okay, I need to be re-solidified in my evil and I need to really, uh, you know, do a better job of sinning somehow. And I don't want to get caught next time or something like that. So there are, there are both physical and spiritual flaws that taint our experiences and, uh, we're biased. We tend to support the things that we want to support. And so as Christians, as wise individuals, we need to understand that those things uh, are possible. And that's why, why we have to acknowledge that the only fail-safe, the, the only true pathway to wisdom, which verifies all other pathways, is special revelation. So this is why every Christian 
you know, doesn't discount personal experience, doesn't discount the idea of wisdom being gleaned through other avenues of life. Uh, as a Christian, I would never say that that a non-Christian can't be wise. I think that there is there is wisdom that is that is appropriate to even the non-believer, and and I've learned greatly from some non-believers. But the thing to remember as a Christian, we acknowledge that the only true true failsafe is special revelation, because everything else is subject to to uh, bias, to misinterpretation, and so. Scripture is objective. You can't subjectively say, well, I think Scripture doesn't mean what it says when it says straightforward, you know, thus says the Lord, don't kill, don't lie, you know, those things. I mean, there's not really much room for misinterpreting those things. That's that's pretty obvious. And so we, we obviously acknowledge at the very beginning wisdom only comes from God, but the natural pathway to, to wisdom is, can be convoluted because of sin. The noetic effects of sin are very real. And because the noetic effects of sin are very real and sometimes our mind doesn't think the right way that we ought to, maybe we didn't get enough sleep and so we don't process things the right way, uh, the only fail-safe then is, is really checking everything against God's word. Sin corrupts everything we see, everything we hear, even the way we remember things. And so, you know, it, it's funny, as an illustration of that, I'm sure, you know, plenty of you have had similar experiences where you have a conversation with somebody and you think it went really well or something like that. And you're just like, wow, yeah, that, that was a lot of fun. That was a good conversation. And then later on, as you're thinking about it, maybe a couple hours later, maybe a couple days later, and you're thinking about it and you're remembering and you say, wait a second, they said that. And wow, that could have been, that could be interpreted differently. Maybe that conversation didn't go as well as I thought it did. And, and, you know, th- there's just different ways that you can interpret things even after the fact as you're re-remembering things or misremembering things. And so you can have a totally different perspective of how something went even hours after, after it took place. And that's, that's part of the, <laughs> fallen nature of humanity is we 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 tend to do those things overanalyze those things in in many ways. So the the whole point then is that revelation is is the failsafe and and one of my favorite favorite passages about this is Psalm 119:97 through 104. So in Psalm 119:97 through 104 in this this beautiful section of Psalm 119 you have the comparison of God's word with the the groups that ought to to facilitate wisdom or or to be bastions of wisdom in one sense and the first one in verse 98 is your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies for it is ever with me so in other words he's just saying listen i have achieved greater wisdom than my enemies those who are persecuting me those who are trying to to hurt me and the reason i have uh more wisdom is because your commandment is ever with me I meditate on your word. I think about it and it's always there. So it makes me wiser than my enemies. In verse 99, he says, I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. And here, this is a positive injunction. It's not saying the teachers are terrible. He's just saying, I have more understanding than them. And understanding is a synonym of wisdom. And so he's saying, again, I am wiser than my teachers because of God's word. So in other words, God's word has a priority over this vicarious experience and this vicarious uh, instruction. Uh, the psalmist is saying, listen, uh, your, your word as the foundation, as my meditation, 
brings me to a level of understanding that surpasses that the ability of a vicarious understanding by others. It is that more sure pathway to wisdom. And then in verse 100, it's the same thing. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. So again, whereas teachers have an expertise in different areas and they, they are teaching and, and helping, well, God's word uh, allows the surpassing of that experience through the special revelation. Similarly, those who have lived life for a while and who have this life experience, uh, God's word allows the individual who has that in their life to have that wisdom that is far surpassing that as well. And so the point being, you can't get away from the main point here in this psalm is in this section of the psalm is that God's word is superior. It is the it is the superior form of wisdom. And the reason is because it comes directly from God. And God doesn't just tell you what, but he also tells you the the as I often say in wisdom literature, he tells you the what, but he also tells you the why and the how. He he gives you the full orbed way of not just what is, but also how to interpret it in many instances. And so special revelation is God's gift to humanity because we are flawed, because we are broken. And we, we can't glean everything from nature. We can glean certain wisdom principles. We can glean things. We are certainly made in the image of God. Common grace is upon us. Those are all real, valuable theological concepts. But special revelation is irreplaceable. It's just you cannot replace that. And so that's why if, you, if you're thinking about what to put your focus on, you know, whether you're listening to unlimited amount of TED Talks a day or what, you know, spend it meditating and learning God's word because that is really the key and pathway to wisdom. And I think it's it's so important to be reminded of this just day in, day out, because, you know, there's so many different things that vie for our attention and for our time. And so just to be reminded that if you want to be wise, you really do need to meditate and think through God's word and and appropriately apply that. And special revelation is is the key to the surest form of wisdom. Yeah, I'm just reminded of uh, what one of my mentors said uh, back back in the day, as I was still just just learning all the intricacies of life, and and it's kind of discouraging when, you, or at least it was in one sense, just to to look uh, at how 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 little I I knew. Now it's funny because I still think I I don't know that much, but but I know objectively I know more now than I did back then, and I just uh, looking at looking at. Uh, the mountain ahead of me, you know, just thinking like, wow, you know, we'll, how is this ever going to work? And I just remember be, being encouraged because the illustration that uh, this individual gave was was that it's it's not it's not necessarily the length of time that you put in, but it's the amount of effort that you put in. In other words, the illustration that he gave was uh, it doesn't matter how long you've been in the boat. It matters how hard you've been rowing. Now, I love that illustration, and you can't push it too far, obviously, because the two go together. Uh, there is a balance involved. But the point being that you could you could be in a boat for 40 years and not really make it two feet past the shore, right? But you could be in the boat for one year, and you could be rowing your heart out, and you could, you could make some real distance, some real maturity in wisdom and uh, growing in wisdom and godliness. And so I've always kind of hung on to that just just remembering that 
this this is the process of the Christian is that we we pour out our souls in the pursuit of wisdom in an effort to please the Lord to be godly for his honor and glory and that ironically enough is even what Proverbs talks about with regard to the pathway to wisdom in uh it's just kind of funny because in Proverbs 4, one of the interesting verses, the, the interesting verses of all verses in verse 7 says, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. It's like, okay, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. In other words, like put your effort into it. If you, the, the, if you want to know just what the starting point of wisdom is, get it, like pursue it. Like that's, that's the point. And I think that that's, that's really helpful. A lot of times we can just overcomplicate things and we just have to remember the, the pathway to the godly life is to stick your head down and do it. You, you just pursue wisdom that way. And, and with regard to God's revelation, what, what a blessing it is to have that and, and be able to check all of these other ways that we're gleaning information. That's, that's a huge, huge blessing. So I hope this is encouraging. Uh, it's kind of a, a little, in, in the middle of nowhere uh, subject with regard to uh, jumping in and doing something from Proverbs. But I have a couple other episodes in the, in the works that we'll be doing on uh, some people have suggested some episode ideas and we're, we're going to be moving on with those in, in the future. But I wanted to throw that in there uh, with, with regard to wisdom because I think it's really important to think through those things. So I hope it's helpful. In the meantime, you can always reach out to me through the contact form on my website And you can always visit the Shepherds Seminary website at shepherds.edu. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.